Galatians chapter 3. So at this point, Paul has established his gospel as exclusive and independent of all human authority because it was a revelation from God, not something that came from man or even the other apostles in terms of how Paul received it. And he's kind of gone through a bit of a personal uh, journey here in the first two chapters. And now in chapter three through really chapter four, he's going to kind of doctrinally establish that the work of God, again, continues through faith in our lives and not by works of the law and that we don't have to go back to that even after salvation. And then the last two chapters, again, he's going to bring in the practical implications of that for our lives. So beginning in verse one, Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, that you are now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain? If it indeed it was in vain. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So Paul begins here, again, expressing his astonishment again at what's happening in this church. Twice he calls these Galatians foolish. The idea is senseless, uh, ignorant, being led astray. He even goes so far as to infer that some magic spell has been set on them. He doesn't actually believe that. The idea is Paul is, again, shocked that it's almost like these false teachers have have used enchantment to get you to so easily surrender what has been given to them. So he begins kind of this next section by asking them, a bunch of what should really be kind of rhetorical questions. They should know the answer to these questions easily. And he really speaks from their own personal experience. So verse one, again, he's shocked in saying, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as sacrificed. Uh, That word for portrayed before them In the Greek, it was used of laws or edicts or notices that would be set up or plastered or hammered up places so that all the public could come by and read those things. And what Paul's essentially saying is Christ was portrayed in front of you as crucified, that you easily saw uh, the reality, the spiritual reality of Jesus Christ crucified through the work of the Holy Spirit, not just a literal picture, not just in symbols, but in in a reality that was enough to change their lives. Christ crucified is what did that. How are you turning from this? This is this is what you received right off the bat. You you saw him personally, like like those Israelites looking up at that serpent that was on the pole in faith and receiving life and healing in them saying you looked at Jesus Christ crucified and your lives were changed. You received the spirit. So what happened? Who bewitched you? And now he begins these these questions here for them in verse two. 
He says, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Paul asks a very pointed question. He wants them to think back to their personal salvation experience here. After recognizing Christ was crucified, they received the spirit of God, which, again, Paul considers these Galatians believers, before they had any type of interaction from the law of Moses. He's like, how did you receive the spirit of God? Do you remember that? Was it, was it by receiving the law and working those things out? No, it was by looking at Christ crucified in faith and receiving the promise of the spirit through his works. He, he clearly contrasts, notice, works of the law and hearing of faith. Paul considers the Holy Spirit as the identifying mark of all true Christians. We talked about that in the last chapter. The life of Christ in us is what marks us as believers, not just the doctrine we hold, the literal spiritual reality of new life through the Holy Spirit. And what Paul then contrasts is hearing, with, hearing and faith with these works of the law. And he's saying these two are opposites. You, you didn't have the spirit through working out the commandments of the law yourself. You heard with faith. And that's how the spirit came into your life. That's the reality of the spirit and new birth through simple belief, not the working out of this Old Testament law. You never received the spirit that way. Verse 3 He's going to build on that and say, are you so foolish then? He's kind of getting back to where he started. Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? And really, you might say this is almost the central question of the whole epistle here, as Paul has been dealing with this issue. Again, they are, they are saved here. He's saying you, you began in the spirit. You received the spirit of God. Okay, now you're going to go back and be made perfect in the flesh? So the, the question for them is, you know, once a person is saved, what is their relation to the law? Must a person trust in Christ and then observe Torah? That was, that was a huge question for them. And it was a rhetorical question, of course. It should have been a resounding no for them. We can't be made perfect or come to maturity in Christ. Notice he says, through the flesh, the flesh being life outside of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. What, what any person can do in the flesh, the life that we have outside of the miraculous work of God in us. The flesh is human life outside of regeneration. And again, I think this is still an important question for us today. Our temptation might not be exactly the same as the Galatians, in terms of getting saved and then going back to the Old Testament Judaic laws and commandments and ceremonial rites, although there is some of that out there in our day and age. But there are modern Protestant versions of these things where we get saved. It's in faith, by grace. God's Spirit begins to work in our lives. And then we can set up kind of our own legalistic systems of Here's what I have to do now to really be righteous or to walk with God that aren't biblical. Uh, Gordon Fee just went home with the Lord to be with the Lord not that long ago. Commentator. Uh, he comes from a Pentecostal background. 
Um, uh, and I think it was interesting. He writes this in his commentary about this verse. He says, it is amazing how historically Pentecostals who often know about the spirit the most trust him the least and have found it easy to add external regulations regarding food and dress and entertainment as means of hemming people in, as it were. Having begun in the spirit, do I myself find it easier to keep myself and others faithful to Christ by establishing rules of conduct that give me a sense of confidence in my obedience to the rules rather than living out profound and pure gratitude to God who in grace would include me among his children. Is my identity identity to be found in some modern form of circumcision rather than in trusting God's grace so that his spirit produces his character in me? Why is it, I wonder, that we find law-keeping so attractive? Certainly that's not just Pentecostals. It's anybody. People can easily turn to legalistic and unbiblical forms of Christianity after salvation. Some because of ignorance. It's just what they've been given. They don't know really anything different. Some because of unbelief in God's acceptance of us in Christ. They feel like they need to work for it. It really is almost too good to be true. Some have a fleshly need to prove themselves before Christ. A.W. Tozier says, long after somebody might give up the hope of being on Time magazine, they want to be on Christianity Today. You know, in flesh, if it can't fulfill itself in one realm, it'll fulfill itself in another. The fleshly need to prove oneself often works out in legalism. Can measure myself against others that way. Here's my set of rules. I keep them. You don't type of a thing. It's easier to ignore God, what, what God actually wants from us. This is one of his constant criticisms of the Pharisees, where they could check off these rules that they made up that they did, and they didn't do the actual things God wanted from them. And it was much easier to do the legalistic thing than maybe have mercy on somebody and love them. That was one of Jesus's constant criticisms. There's all types of reasons that we can fall back into these things. And I think the question here, that's why it becomes so central. We can all be senseless, foolish, and having begun in the spirit, we can attempt to be made perfect in the flesh. Go back to these things that God really hasn't ever asked of us, or we've established on our own, or we try to work our own righteousness. All of this has to be rejected. We have to continue as we began in the faith, in childlike faith and dependence on the Holy Spirit. And Paul wants them to think about these things. Verse 4, have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Uh, the word for suffer can be experienced. It seems like the, the context there is suffered. They, they probably had difficulties and hardships that they went through. Well, even if it was just experience, the whole point is kind of the same. Like, was, was everything you've experienced and gone through then for Christ in vain? Why did you do it? If you just needed the law, if you just need to keep these rules, then why connect with Christ? Why suffer the shame of him? Why be named in him? Well, what was the point of all that? Was it purposeless? And then last he asked him, Therefore, he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? 
Paul forces them to consider how God is continuing to work among them. God was present with them by his spirit. He was supplying their needs and working miraculously. Was that all because of the law? Was it, is God only doing these things in your life because you check off these boxes? Again, they, they would have those Jewish boxes. We have other boxes in our modern kind of way. You know, we're like, oh man, I'm up for this promotion at work. I better read Devos every day this week. If I miss a day, God might be like, well, no, not this time. Right? You know, we have our little little boxes that we feel like I got to check these things. And if I don't check these things, then God's not going to be nice to me. Paul's saying, OK, God worked miraculously among you. When you got saved, is it because you kept the law? <laughs> when he gave you a spirit and opened your eyes, you received salvation. Was it was it because you did something right? No. How did he do it? Was it by faith? Is it simple trust in him? Or was it because of your works? Again, all of these things should be easy for them to come to the realization there. And he brings their personal experience right in front of them. And now in six, he's going to begin to transition between their experience and the example of faith that we have in the scriptures. Uh, no doubt he's doing this because many of the false teachings of the Judaizers would have started with some of these things, the stuff that bewitched the Galatians, I'm sure the Judaizers talked about Abraham. They talked about Moses. It sounded very spiritual and was part of what tricked them. So now Paul's going to go back and begin to establish from the scriptures the same things he's been saying to them. So he says in verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He quotes there from Genesis and the promises of God. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So Paul now goes all the way back to Abraham, which of course would be a central character for anybody who's talking about Jewish issues. Uh, in Romans 4, Paul deals with a similar situation here, and he even mentions there, this is before Abraham is circumcised, he receives this promise. And he wants to show from his quote in Genesis 15 that Abraham was accounted righteous before God because of belief, of faith, not because of his works. Abraham's faith even wasn't meritorious in the sense that like, God didn't say, okay, Abraham, you believe in your account of righteous because your belief is way better than everybody else's belief. It was, faith was key because it was in God's word. He just believed what God said to him. And because he believed what God said to him, the Bible says he was accounted righteous. So Abraham, doing no works of the law, Nothing that God had given to him in terms of, hey, here's these Ten Commandments you need to work out. Believe what God said. So, he says, those who still believe what God says are the sons of Abraham. Just as this happened with Abraham, it's happening with you. Abraham didn't do works. He received God's word and he believed it. You and I receive God's word and we believe it. Therefore, Know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. We don't, we don't do works. Just like Abraham didn't start with works, he started with faith. 
And he says in verse 8 there, Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Paul makes it clear that that was God's plan all along. Scripture, of course, he speaks about it as if it's a person foreseeing because the Holy Spirit is the author of the Scripture. And he knew he would be authoring it through different men through hundreds of years. And he says, this was God's plan all along. That's why these things are in the scriptures. It all works together. God knew what he was going to do. And he knew that he would justify the Gentiles, notice, by faith. So he preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you, all the nations shall be blessed. The gospel, as good news to the Gentiles, was already included in the plan as seen in God's promises to Abraham. Paul's saying, hey, a lot of you guys are Gentiles. God included you in the very beginning. Abraham was your example, and the promise wasn't just to Abraham. It was to all the nations. You were a part of this. The good news, the blessing that God extended from the very beginning included all nations. God foresaw that. He put it in there. He made it clear, not just Israel. So he says in nine, then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. We want to be linked. The nations being blessed, of course, in this verse is linked to justification by faith. That was the blessing that he was extending to all the nations, not just to Israel. That, notice, blessing and justification are the things he mentions in 8 and 9 there. So the Gentiles being linked in with this, he says, Abraham is still your example, and we take from Abraham his faith, not his circumcision, not his keeping of the law in that regard. That's how Abraham started. That's how we start. That's how he continued. That's how we continue. Now in 10, he's going to build on that. And he's going to say, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But then no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. So here... Paul wants to make it clear that there are two opposing approaches to living out our faith. One is the sphere of faith, and the other is the sphere of law. Trusting in God or doing your own works. Those two things are separate. So first he quotes a combination in verse 10 there of Deuteronomy 27, 6, or 26 and Deuteronomy 28, 1. And he wants to make the point here that the Judaizers are not consistent. So he says again, for as many as are of the works of the law. Okay, if you want to get there through works of the law, they are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And Paul's point here is these Judaizers weren't even being consistent. They were choosing the law, the law a la carte, Right. We want you to get circumcised. We want you to eat these things. They, but you didn't have to do everything. Yet you could, they kind of picked and chose the things that they wanted out of the law that they would have to do. And Paul, he's going to be bugged at them because he says, first, you can't do that. 
because the scripture says, if you're going to keep the law, you have to keep all the works of the law. You're not allowed to pick and choose. Just tell somebody that they're going to be circumcised and that's okay. You have to do everything. He'd say in 5.3, I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. This is, this is kind of Paul's point. You say, okay, you're saved. Now you got to keep the law. Well, you can't just tell somebody they need to get circumcised. You got to keep it all. The law doesn't allow you to pick and choose. If you claim the law, then you got to do it all. And if you don't do it all, you're under the curse. Second, he says in 11, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. He says, but nobody can be justified by the law. You, nobody can look to the law for salvation or after salvation. James 2.10 says, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Nobody can keep the law. You can't live in that sphere because it will kill you because you'll fail because you're not perfect. There's a sphere that we live in, and he quotes here from Habakkuk 2.4, to show that life that the life that's justified is lived by faith and not by works of the law. The just shall live by faith, Paul says. And that's quoted a number of times in the scripture. That's not just how we enter into life. That's how life continues. So we get saved by faith in Jesus. Again, nobody does righteousness to get saved. We respond in faith to what Christ has done on our behalf. Then he gives us life. And we continue in faith, believing the things that God says to us. Uh, and Paul will use that phrase, the just shall live by faith, uh, a number of different ways, or Paul or the writers of the New Testament. In Romans 1, it's just talked about in terms of justification by faith, but also as a foundation for salvation. Here, the context, again, is troubled believers. They're already Christians, and they're getting tricked to go back to the law. And Paul has to remind them, no, the just live by faith, not just come to salvation by faith, but live by faith, even after salvation. And in Hebrews, the writer there is writing to the people that were in danger of giving up the race and throwing out their confidence in their faith and giving it up totally. And the reality is, this is how all of us continue to live. It's not just them. It's not just this one moment. The just shall live by faith, period. This is the sphere that you and I move in. You, you might, uh, no matter what's going on in your life right now, not think it's that important. But right now, if we traced out all of our lives, all of us would be expressing faith in Jesus Christ one way or another. Sometimes we can talk about the life of faith and it seems like, you know, it's for martyrs or missionaries or somebody who's in really dire financial straits. Right? Those are the people who live by faith. But the reality is, every single one of us lives by faith. The life of faith is extended to all of us. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And to please God right now in all of our lives, if we, if we sat down and we actually took down everybody's life and wrote it out and explained it, it would be a drama better than a movie. Because every single one of us to actually please God and walk with them right now is required to express faith in one way or another. And that's how we have to live. It's how we came into this. It's how we're going to go through the whole thing.
and the just live by faith. Now, Paul will quote in 12 from Leviticus 18.5. He'll say, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live in them. And here Paul's point is, the law itself is clear about the matter that it cannot be mixed with the path of faith. You either do one or the other. He says the law is not of faith, not that we can't trust in what God says. The idea is the law tells me I need to do something, not necessarily believe something. He says these two are mutually exclusive. The law itself claims to be something different. Faith is talked about in one way. The law and righteousness are talked about in an opposite way. The law doesn't give you the ability to be a la carte and just kind of choose the parts that you want. It doesn't offer you salvation. And nor does it give you the right to try to mix it with something like faith because it's about works and obedience. Paul's laying these things out, making it clear for them. Now in 13, he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Here's a remarkable verse about what Christ has done for us on the cross. Jesus Christ was made a curse for us sacrificially because of what we were under that curse actually. He was made a curse for us. It's, it's pretty, pretty remarkable what Paul would state here. Christ has redeemed us. This is how he has redeemed us, by becoming a curse for us. Substitution is what the Bible teaches. Remarkable statement here, very much like what Paul wrote earlier in Corinthians, where he talked about he who knew, knew no sin became sin, made to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This passage is similar here. He brings up from, again, a Old Testament reference in Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The scripture says that. Actually, pretty remarkably, in the book of Acts, the idea of death on a tree is picked up in their preaching, Acts 5.30, Acts 10.39, Acts 13.29. Uh, usually a person would be put to death, their body would be hanged on a tree. It was a sign of judgment or a cursing. And the fact that they would come out uh, these apostles, and not be ashamed to preach that about Jesus Christ, I think we can miss that. To make it an essential element of what they preached about Jesus, particularly in a Jewish context, meant they really understood he wasn't carrying the curse for himself. It was for us. Peter would say in 1 Peter 2, 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live to righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Uh, I think the, the argument here is to be kept clear when he brings in this context of the curse and the curse of the law. 
his, his point is, if Christ took the curse of the law for us, then there's no need for us to try to keep the law by works anymore. Everything the law would have put on me for breaking it, Christ already took. So why am I trying to go back and keep it now? The curse has been expended, given, worked out on Christ Jesus already, paid in full. So what what are you going back to? What are you trying to work out here? This curse has already been dealt with in Jesus Christ. I'm set free from the law. There's no need to try to escape it by my own works. Why? He says in 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This is how the the promise of the Holy Spirit comes to Jew and Gentile through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. If I try to get there myself, I'm just back under the curse. But why am I going back under the curse if Jesus already paid the price? If he already redeemed me from the curse of the law? What is going on there? In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was the promise that God gave. From Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, that God would take his law and the whole aim of the law and that essentially he would change our hearts and he would write it there in a new way through his Holy Spirit in a new covenant. And Paul will say the summation of the law is love your neighbor as yourself just in a few chapters. He does that through his Holy Spirit now. He takes the whole aim of the law and he gives you a spirit instead. I'm going to give him a new heart. I'm not just going to give him a bunch of rules. I'm going to give him the life, the power to live it out. That's, that's the promise. And he says, how does that come to us? Did that come to us through keeping the law? No, that promise of the spirit would come through faith. Now, 15, he says, brethren, and and I don't think we can skip over that word there. I think it's very important. Paul's still communicating in brotherly love. He knows there are, and this is important for us, legalistic brothers and sisters out there who are bewitched or tricked or in bondage. And Paul's going to, he's laying it out here, (laughs) but He's still claiming these as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think that's important for us, even if we come to uh, legalistic individuals. Uh, Sometimes in in general Christian realms, right, there's a very hateful attitude toward legalistic people. And it doesn't mean we have to love what they're doing or what they say. But, like, Jesus loved the Pharisees. Paul here loves these believers that are getting caught up in legalistic Judaism. And he loved those Jewish religious nutcases that were like him because that's who he was. And he understood the work of God in people's lives and the Holy Spirit and his ability to change them and to open their eyes. So I think that's important there. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls it or adds to it. So when he says, I speak in the manner of men, he's saying, I'm going to give you an everyday life example here. I'm going to add to this. 
And he says, if there is a covenant, if it's confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. The idea there is a covenant. Uh, We might say in our modern day, a will. If somebody writes up a will and that will is done and they pass away, uh, nobody can go to that will and now change things or add to it, right? You can't go to somebody else's will and write your name in there and be like, oh, yeah, me too. Right? You're not allowed to do that. You can't, if, it's, if it's established, if it's ratified, you're not allowed to take away from it or add to it. Unfortunately, some people get very negative around those things. Uh, but he says that's an everyday life example. Now he's going to add to that 16. To Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So uh, Paul is again, I think, anticipating an argument here from some of these Judaizers. Uh, He knows they'll say something along the lines of, hey, look, yeah, Abraham, maybe he believed and he was accounted righteous, but he got circumcised after that. And then the law came in later. And at that point, you can't just throw the law out. It's got to be a part of the equation. So circumcision and the law, no doubt, need to be a part of what happens after someone expresses faith in Jesus Christ. That has to be why they're taken into account. So most agree they're saying something along those types of lines here. And Paul begins to address, I think, those concerns. And no doubt he had conversations like this continually with individuals. So he takes them back to the promises of God in Genesis in 16. Again, he says, to his seed were the promises made. He does not say to seeds as of many, but of one. So he's saying the, the promise when given was given to one, his seed, and all the promises that would come, Genesis 12, 13, 15, through, through the whole section there, the promises given to Abraham, there was always a recognized individual that they would come through. It wasn't just Isaac. Abraham knew Isaac was necessary for his line to continue all the way from Genesis and the prophecy about one coming who would crush the head of the serpent, whose heel would be wounded, there was an understanding of a person. There's a person. There's a Messiah. These things are going to be centralized in an individual. And that person who comes, that singular seed, is going to be the one who brings the blessing to everyone. So not just the Israelites, but again, Paul says to that wider group that would encompass Jews and Gentiles. And Paul makes it clear that that seed was Christ. And we receive the blessings of Christ through faith. So in 17 and 18, what he's saying when he says that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect, He's saying, remember my normal life illustration? God made a promise to Abraham. The law comes hundreds of years later. 
It can't annul or change or be added to the promise, the covenant that God made with Abraham. It can't switch things. Just like I can't go to a person's will and add myself in. It can't make the promise of no effect. The two are mutually exclusive in terms of life and approach. God gave to Abraham this promise. He says, if the inheritance is of the law, it's no longer of promise. It can't be both. If I have to work for it or was I promised it by God? Those are two different things. So which one is it? But God gave it to Abraham by promise. And that word gave there in the Greek is a unique one. It means to give as an act of grace. Did God decide to do something here? Or do we got to work for it? What was the contract that was made? Was it you got to keep these things to receive the blessings? Or did God make a promise to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed? That can't be changed. Now, 19, no doubt again, he's anticipating. What purpose then does the law serve? So I think it was a logical question. If, if I'm standing there, maybe I'm a Jew and I'm trying to work through these things and I'm saying, okay, if the law didn't give us the Holy Spirit, it didn't justify us in God's sight, it left us under a curse, it had no relation to God's promise of Abraham's seed, well then what was it for? Hey, why bother with the law at all? Paul answers very short and clear. Because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. The law is perfect for the lawless. The law of God revealed sin as transgression of God's holiness until the coming of Christ. That was what the law did. Notice it was temporary. It was added because of transgressions, 19, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Paul would say in Romans 4.15, because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. The idea is the law showed people they were sinners in need of a savior. That's what the law did. It showed you that God is holy and you're not. It showed you that you can't work for salvation because you can't keep a perfect holy law. It brings a sense of God's holiness to sinful human beings. And it's very good for that purpose. And it's still good for that purpose. First Timothy 1 verses 8 and 9, Paul says, We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate. So even today, I think it's important for us to know what the law is for. Because interestingly enough, Satan will deceive people in abusing the law by trying to use it to prove their own holiness. That's what happens. If people use the law to prove their own holiness, and what Paul says here is, no, God ordained and set up and added the law to prove you're not holy. <laughs> so if you take it and try to use it to prove your unholiness, you're doing the exact opposite thing that God sent it in the world to do. You're, you're showing that you don't understand it at all, which is the thing that the Jews were doing. And it's important for us to know the same. The law was intended to show I'm a transgressor in need of a savior. 
that's what the law shows me, that I'm lawless. Secondarily, Paul says that the law was mediated by angels and Moses to the people. Acts 7.53 mentions that, Hebrews chapter 2. We don't know exactly, uh, we don't have details of exactly what the angels did. That's what everybody wants to know. Like, wait, what did they do? I don't, we don't know. It just says they were a part of it. They were part of the mediation there. And on the other side, it says, but God is one. So uh, I think his point is, if something was mediated between second and third parties, God brought it, angels brought it, helped Moses receive it, and then Moses went and gave it to the people, that's a couple moves down the line. But he said the promise was God speaking to Abraham. This is what I'm going to do. And that is much more direct. We can't take this thing that's been mediated, which shows a secondary and temporary character, as something that reinterprets and changes the direct thing that God said. It's almost like whisper down the lane, right? If you're like, hey, Mike said this to me directly, that's one thing. If you said, hey, my friend said that they heard from, who heard from, who heard from, that Mike said, you'd be like, I'm going to trust that less than the person who just said something to me directly. If something's been mediated, it shows it's a different type of character there. So, Paul's, again, just establishing that what God promised in Abraham, you can't just change. The law doesn't change it. The law doesn't annul it. There's, there's something direct that God was establishing there. Now, 21, he answers another question. Is the law then against the promises of God? Well, okay, so then the law is in conflict with the promises of God. Well, why did God make something that would ruin what he was doing? Paul says, again, certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been from the law. The larger point Paul is making is the law was never intended to replace or to change or to do the work of God's promise to Abraham through faith. It was never meant to take that place. You're taking things that have two totally different purposes and trying to use them for something else. Like, you could try to hammer in a bunch of nails with a screwdriver, but it's going to take you all day. Right? That's not what it's for. Uh, the screwdriver isn't against the hammer. They are four different jobs. And Paul is saying they're not against one another. They had totally different aims. If the law could bring righteousness, there would have never been a promise. God would have never had to say what he said to Abraham. That would have been unnecessary. His summary, though, in 22, Paul says, But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Here's how the law was a necessary addition to the promises of God. The law proved everybody's a sinner in need of a Savior. And it showed that faith in Jesus Christ and not works would be the necessary element of our salvation. That's what it did. It's pretty simple, actually. They were just getting things mixed up. Now, he's going to add a little to that, 23. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So... Paul uses a few different terms to describe the work of the law in this intermediary period before Christ arrived. 
and gave us the blessing of the Spirit through faith. Saying, yeah, the law had its purpose and its time. So he says that the law kept them, notice, under guard. That term was really used of military occupation of a city. The law kind of occupied our lives in that sense. He says they were kept by it. The word for kept there has the idea of being hemmed in or being cooped up. That the law was good because they provided boundaries for sinners. God had to look at human beings and tell them, thou shalt not steal. Because humanity needs that boundary. I don't care what culture you're from or what area you're from. Go anywhere in the world, people steal stuff. Right? Thou shalt not lie. You're allowed to go to your neighbor's field and pull a couple of the extra things there to harvest with your hands. You're not allowed to bring a bucket over to your neighbor's house and harvest his whole crop for yourself, right? Like God had to say these things to people. And even some of the things he doesn't love, right? When the Pharisees talk to Jesus and they say, how come Moses gave us the ability to write divorce for somebody? And Jesus has to say, because of the hardness of your hearts. It wasn't because God loves divorce that he gave provision for it. It was because he understood that he's trying to corral sinful human beings in the world. God doesn't love murder. God doesn't love covetousness. He had to address all types of things in the law because it was a boundary. It was a military occupation of sinful people to try to hold them within a certain amount of boundary. And it was good that he gives us that law. He says it was as well a tutor the word in the Greek there is pedagogos. Uh, it's a bit misleading in English. Your, your Bible might say a schoolmaster or a school teacher. It's not actually a person who taught per se. It was more an ancient um, chaperone or disciplinarian. They would walk that child back and forth to school and they would discipline them. John Stott in his commentary says most ancient depictions of this particular person they are drawn with a rod in their hand. So, uh, and sometimes that discipline could be very cruel. Uh, really, Paul kind of gives a similar image of himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 21. He says, do you want me to show up with a rod? You want me to play this role? Do I got to be that guy, the disciplinarian? Or can I show up in grace and peace? And the idea there is, again, the law would discipline us. It would keep us on the right track. But once we, as that child, would come of age, they no longer required that disciplinarian. And Paul says, faith in Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit put us in a position where we don't need the law in the same way. And now we're in a new covenant. Uh, they, the law didn't give us the way to live out life. It just kept us in the right box and penalized us. Right? It was similar to a referee. A basketball ref can't give you game. He just penalizes your game. Just tells you everything you do wrong. Right? This is where you break all the rules. That's, that's what the tutor was. <laughs> the person that walked around the law just told you where you broke all the rules, where you weren't like God. But in faith, the promise that God always wanted is Jews and Gentiles receiving his spirit. Now he gives us life. That's different. 
That's what Christianity is. And we receive that through faith, not through the law, not through a referee, through him. 26. He says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. I think Paul wants to say that to this church. It's the great declaration of the church, Jews and Gentiles in one body in Christ Jesus. But I think he wants, he needs, he knows the Galatians need to hear this. This is what you are. You are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The idea there being um, the picture of baptism and what it symbolizes. Again, the New Testament doesn't envision, I don't think the apostles ever envisioned a non-baptized believer. You became a believer and you got baptized. That was one of the commands of Christ. They would do that. And it was a public statement about the spiritual reality of what was happening inside of you. Some people try to take this verse and teach baptismal regeneration, that baptism is what actually saves you, which, of course, is the, the whole opposite of the entire epistle that Paul's writing here. No, he's using it in the same fashion he does in Romans chapter 6, where he's saying the reality of what happened inside of you was pictured in your baptism. Who were you baptized into? Into Christ. And you've put on Christ, his life, his character, It's a spiritual reality, and they had all put on Christ in the same symbolic fashion as described in Romans 6. So that, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All believers, all baptized into Christ, same name, all in that same picture, all receiving the same life, one family in Christ Jesus. Paul would say in Ephesians 2, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from two, thus making peace. Paul wants them to understand this Jew-Gentile thing, this is over. And he brings in all these other classifications that were the biggest ones of their day. A slave and a free man. Or a man and a woman. Such different views of those things. How they classified your entire life. And sadly, still all around the world, they can still classify lives. But he says, in Christ, this is all changed. We all come the same way through faith to the same Savior. We make the same public statement in him, and we receive the same life, and we become a part of the same family in him. Now, we can't take this out of context. Uh, We're equal in Christ and in how we come to him and have equal value in him, but that doesn't mean our individuality is gone or our function is gone. You still have nationality. You still have gifts. There's still gender in families. There's people, feminists want to reinterpret the Bible and say this removes all differences in biblical roles between men and women. God is not speaking about, or Paul's not speaking about God's ordered roles in the family 
or in the church in this passage. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about salvation and the work of God before and after that. He talks about those ordered roles in a number of other places. Liberal interpreters want to take this verse and remove all the differences in the sexes and say gay and lesbian marriage is fine now and acceptable to God because there's no male or female. God doesn't put any view of those things. God is, Paul is not talking about God's intent in marriage here. That's not his point. His point is very simple. All Christians share equally in the blessings of the family of God through faith. That's it. That's what his point is. All Christians share equally in the promised blessing that the scripture foresaw from the very beginning by faith. And my nationality doesn't keep me out of that. Jew or Gentile or whatever else I am. My gender doesn't keep me out of that. My standing, social standing in the world doesn't keep me out of that. It is extended equally to all. Now, certainly, if that's true, my first relation to another believer is that of a brother or sister in Jesus Christ. That's how I should see them. That's how I should relate to them. It's not a matter of race or of social standing or of gender. We've all been lost sinners saved by Jesus Christ. We've all been people under the curse of the law who have been redeemed from the curse of the law by the work of Jesus Christ. And certainly you could go through history and in our modern history and say, if people related to one another through the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of the saints, things would be a lot better. It is a powerful statement there, but I do think it's important that we need to keep it in its proper context. People want to take this and just kind of run wild with it here. Paul is talking about something very specific to these people. But it is a beautiful thing that God has extended to all people. That the ends of the earth can look to him and be saved. And you know what? It's not complicated. You just need to put your faith in Jesus Christ. You don't have to do anything because you can't do anything. Only Jesus Christ can do the work. And when I come to him in faith and receive salvation and the promise of the Holy Spirit, I continue to live in faith. And how I receive the Spirit, how I began, is how I'm going to continue. I can't begin in the Spirit and then be made perfect in the flesh. I can't go back to this law-oriented righteousness, whether it's the Jewish ceremonial law or whatever modern version of law people want to make up. Somebody, some weird cult leader is throwing out all types of crazy things, right? Like everybody's got to give me their wives now or something. That's what they always say. Something like that. It's nuts. And all your money, right? Those are the things that always end up coming out. People, people do all types of crazy things and then adding in after salvation. We're saved by his work, not our own. So Paul says, verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you're Christ, if his life is in you, then you're really Abraham's seed. You're the literal fulfillment of the promise that he gave to Abraham from that very beginning. And that's how you have to continue. So let's stand. We're going to pray.
Uh, he'll continue to work through some of these things in chapter 4. I encourage you to read ahead. I would just again say to anybody who's here, uh, if you are here tonight and you came out and you felt like you got to do a bunch of stuff to be saved or you had to keep some type of Jewish law, I don't know, maybe somebody's here and that's what they've been given or maybe you come from a very legalistic background, uh, I would just like to say to you, put your faith in Jesus Christ and his work and you can receive the promise of God through faith. That's what he wants. So just come to him and say, Lord, I give up. I have no hope in myself and my works. The only way I will be saved is your works on my behalf. And believe that Christ has already redeemed you from the curse of the law. And you'll be saved. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your truth. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. There is no one else who could have done it. You and you alone, Lord. And you deserve the name that is above every name. And you deserve the fact that every knee is going to bow. And every tongue is going to confess that you're Lord. So we thank you. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us more what it means to continue to walk in your spirit and to live by faith in a way that's pleasing to you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.